The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. Also wonderful to have my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great show ahead. Elliot, let's uh, kick it off with you. All right. Thanks, John. Um, I'm going to get a little personal today uh, and go down a path that uh, is a little different, maybe. Um, January was my 10-year anniversary of running this strategy at RGA that I've been doing. And, you know, it's a little bittersweet because this has been perhaps my most challenging stretch in this decade. And I know there are people out there who say stuff like markets have been straight up for 10 years, but we started in the wake of the financial crisis, uh, had the European crisis, had taper tantrum, the COVID crash, uh, 2018 was like a very weird year. You know, there were other situations and times that weren't not exactly straight up in markets. Um, and, you know, everyone has a really challenging stretch uh, at some point in their career. You do this long enough, it's bound to happen. There's going to be a worst uh, period of time that you go through. Um, but I think one of the most important things is to reflect on what lessons can and should be learned. Like my prior most challenging period was August 2015 through August through February 2016. And actually, I think that was one of my most formative years and made me a way better investor. And it wasn't fun in the time, but it also, in being able to kind of self-reflect and take out some lessons, I made some fantastic investments heading out of that period, some of which are still... Uh, in my book today. And I also got some very close relationships and built great rapport uh, and trust, earned trust with my client base. And I think that's when I went from having like a startup to a sustainable business because I went through that and uh, dealt and coped with the challenges in the right way. Um, so I think, you know, one caveat is everyone has to be careful not to take the wrong lessons out of any environment because it could be more harmful to take the wrong lessons out than no lessons at all. And, you know, while I'm 10 years into this, I still think I'm very young for this particular uh, job and mission uh, as a not quite 40 year old. So I want to make sure my next decade is even better than my last. Like that's my foremost goal right now. So one of the things that's challenging for me is the average stock that's been a struggle for me right now has been in my portfolio for about four years. And that raises the question of, is this the price to pay of buying and holding really good companies for a long time? Or am I really bad at having a like formative, uh, a followable selling strategy? Um, 
you know, this is in my wheelhouse of my time frame to hold these things for this amount of time to deal with drawdowns along the way because you don't hold companies for multiple years without having that. Typically, like one in every three years, even really good companies will underperform. Over the last decade, all of the best performers for the decade had drawdowns of 50% or more, uh, maybe with one or two exceptions. So identifying really good growing companies that are inexpensive, you know, stuff like this is bound to happen. Um, I did a tweet storm yesterday. So we're recording this on Thursday. I did a tweet storm yesterday about how my greatest failings as an investor have been overstaying my welcome. Um, and so that means I'm definitely thinking about this idea that perhaps this is not merely the price to pay of owning good companies for the long term, but rather there are certain situations where one, one must consider something other than just you know sitting tight. And interestingly, especially in the responses, but more often than not, when people speak about their biggest errors as investors, they talk about errors of omission um, as their biggest ones. And I too have spoken about mine, but I'm starting to feel that that's a little too easy of an excuse and doesn't take enough critical reflection to really, you know, go past that. Um, it's very hard to analyze counterfactuals because there's always a reason why you didn't buy it. Like I was surprised how many have said their errors are the opposite of what I'm saying. But I think in many examples, a lot of these people would have had opportunities to repurchase the sold stock at a better price for a better IRR even on an after-tax basis. So, you know, it's worth thinking about. I don't know if I have answers. I have questions, but it's worth thinking about it. And I'd offer that perhaps the biggest sin wasn't selling, but rather losing track of the company along the way after having sold. And I'll use an example of one of my biggest errors of omission. It was I sold NVIDIA. Uh, I think it was in 2015 at like 18 bucks a share pre-split. Um, it was one of my worst sales ever. It was because, you know, I've talked about it on this podcast. I got tired of it going up and down so many times from 11 to 18 that I was like, screw this, I'm out. Um, I could have bought back more than once, like maybe even a handful of times over the next few years had I stayed with it for as good, if not better, IRRs. So, like, you know, follow up on things might be a really important lesson rather than thinking about, oh, I should have held it through a lot of painful periods. Um, you know, so I want to give a few points about my own un unwillingness to sell, especially in light of the fact that I was the one who introduced the topic hashtag never sell on this podcast. And I want to caveat again that I presented that as a topic about narrowing your universe of companies to focus on buying those that you'd be willing and able to hold forever as a screening mechanism more so than a I will never sell the companies I buy because you really can't do that unless you always have cash coming into your portfolio. So in other words, it's try to buy companies that you believe in, right? That are worthy of holding forever, but don't necessarily do it. Don't fall in love. Don't overstay your welcome, which is exactly what I'm grappling with today. Um, I, I feel there are several distinct reasons why I have been guilty of overstaying my welcome uh, in more than a few situations. And they varied from tax derangement syndrome, which is what I call the, oh, I'll wait till next year and kick the tax obligation down the line. Or, you know, this thing went up a little too fast, but God, I need to get to long-term capital gains um, to something like falling in love with the stock where, you know, uh, we've been together for a long time and I really like it and I understand it and I know it well. And, you know, I, even if it's overvalued, I still think it's really good. And, you know, I'm, that's not necessarily a good thing to do. Um, you, there's a bias for that endowment bias. Um, and that's a dangerous one, I think. There's also sucking my thumb, which is like, you know, 
this thing's overvalued right now, but I've got some time to make a decision. I'll like decide soon enough. And then it starts slipping down and you're like, well, I should have sold it up there, but here it's too cheap. And then it keeps fading away. And you're like, oh God, what did I just do? You know, that's not ideal. Um, you need an actual framework for these things. Um, thinking something needs digestion very well might be the time where you should be asking yourself, what is the skew between upside and downside right here, right now, over a three-year time frame or so. Because even thinking long-term, you sometimes have to narrow the time frame. And when I say long-term, I'm talking about thinking about a decade. So three years is pretty long for the average duration of a security in the market. Um, those aren't good reasons to like not sell. You should still ask yourself. The fact that you think it might need any of those things, you should really ask yourself critically, like, is this time? So, and I'm really thinking about this a lot right now because yesterday, two of my longest tenured positions moved in exact opposite directions. And they're in very different positions against their 2021 prices. Positions, I mean, like where they are relative to where they were in early 2021. And I think there are a few clear lessons that these two distinct situations offer, specifically their Google and PayPal. Um, so Google stayed within fairly bound valuation parameters the whole time I've owned the stock. It's, it's the one stock I've owned from my very first day in business doing this a decade ago. Um, whereas PayPal... It went to uncharted territory on its valuation map. So you could look at like a PE, EV to EBITDA, price to sales, whatever the hell you want to use over time. And typically they oscillate within bounds, right? There's a high end of the range and a low end of the range. And to hold things for a long time, you obviously expect it at some point to visit each area, but then it becomes untethered. And you have to ask yourself, is this for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? Um Google had management that was restrained in their language and actually went from bad to better to good at capital allocation, while the bad one, you know, PayPal, kept buying stock even when price was really high and they kind of knew it too. And they did an investor day to try to like talk things up even more and set more audacious financial targets. Whereas Google never gave guidance. They actually pulled guidance over time and were like, you know, let's just take this business one step at a time and think about it that way. Um, and you know, I think those are really big distinctions. Uh, when you start raising your targets as you get more successful, um, you create this treadmill of having to misalign your incentives for sound business practice. And I think that hurts too. And then you find yourself, you know, within a year of changing your North Star. And that's problematic. That's not good. Um, and that raises even more questions, like uh if from the investor base and doesn't inspire confidence. So, you know, I think I think that's a pretty big distinction. Obviously, you know, there were some signs along the way too that that suggested uh that kind of uh lost north star. Um and then, you know, uh let's see, excuse making. You know, uh Google never made any excuses for good or bad performance, but uh the bad the bad one, PayPal, they started making excuses like lockdowns ended sooner than we thought for missing guidance and you know, excuses is just not good. You you should either do it or not, you know, say it would happen and it is what it is. Um, one thing I'm really grappling with is that the COVID environment has been especially unique on this front though, with how quickly things have moved, with how much retail enthusiasm there was in markets, um, with how certain technology names in particular, even Gar like, I, I think I dabble in the Garpy ones, even though a lot of people are talking about how like unprofitable companies are what are getting their comeuppance. Um, I think there's some pretty damn good cash flowing businesses. Like again, PayPal on a couple of years out is well above a 5% free cash flow yields. I mean, that's not insane. Uh, it's 7% on two years out. Maybe estimates got to come down, uh, but that's still pretty healthy. Um, the bigger problem is that everything's become effectively one trade in the eyes of the market. 
uh, factors have driven flows. And when flows go up, um, you know, businesses that have fundamentally different value drivers are starting to all move in tandem. And that's been a big problem. Uh, people treat the COVID tailwind. And when it stops being a tailwind, it becomes a headwind and, and the flows go exactly in reverse. So I've often tried to simplify, use a KPI to navigate. So I'm sure you've heard me here many times talk about PayPal and say, my North Star is so long as engagement is rising, I'm content here. And it actually has accelerated in, in the past couple of quarters when things aren't going well. So again, my North Star is what it is and I know what I'm following. Um, but a few key things come to mind that that might be more helpful. Trimming positions more often based on valuation criteria, not just sizing. Um, sizing has often been my trigger, more so than valuation itself, wanting to hold things for a very long time. Have to be more rigid on valuation, especially what I was talking about, leaving like historic parameters. Um, thinking holistically about the portfolio and being wary when upside is in uniform, uh, is, is uniform across a group of names. Because you know, those flows reverse. There, there's no thinking to yourself, hey, my names are the ones that are going to stand out from the pack. There's a pack and they're all going to move together. So you have to be either very willing and ready to hold through it all, understanding how far it just might go, or you have to move some chips aside and be willing to sit with a little more cash or struggle to redeploy that money. But you know, that's something. And, um, you know, I think there there's a little hubris that comes with it, maybe a lot of hubris. And I have to reflect on how that got to me. And I'm guilty as charged for thinking, you know, that my names were the ones that would be safe. That's just not the right way to think about things. Um, so these are some of the things that I'm grappling with. I do have more questions and answers. I, I, I think there's some things you know, a lot of these things I'm raising, I'm not 100% convinced are exactly right yet, but I think putting them out there and then opening it up to discussion with these wise gentlemen uh, truly helps me find my way. And I know that as I journal and as I track this and as I uh, speak with some of you listeners out there as well, uh, I'll be better over the next 10 years for it. So let's hear from you guys. I'd, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, on some of these issues. One thing I'm curious about because we were just talking about PayPal and you brought it up again, is that, you know, assuming you didn't do the wrong thing by, you know, over hyping it or over convincing yourself of some unrealistic reality. Like if you'd own that thing over the number of years, like that it's been public, right. Or even if you owned it inside of eBay and then held the two pieces, you would have had an awesome result. So when you say overstaying, you're welcome. Like, I think you get back to like, the issue you described, which is just the inherent asset liability mismatch that any fund manager faces. If you had had enough inflows over the period to mask this problem, right? So if you had bought PayPal six or seven years ago and held it through today and not allocated more to it when the price went up, it didn't matter if you trimmed it because the inflows would have diluted the size down and you would have still had the massive after-tax compounding going on in the company, right? So when you say your biggest mistake is overstaying, you're welcome. Is that because of that problem or is it because, you know, you actually round trip something and then have an opportunity cost issue or more than round trips and you actually destroyed value because you've you've overcommitted to something or something declines in, in actual value? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Well, to be clear, like 80% of what we manage is in SMAs, 20% is in the hedge fund. So we don't really have the flow situation. It's been a pretty good return overall in every uh, sense of the word, but it's, you know, less than half as good as it was just six months ago, right? <laughs> 
So well, that's what sure. I mean by overstaying my welcome. Um, yeah. You know, take a great return and turn it into a, a merely pretty good one. But, you know, when I think about the risk reward that I take in a given position, uh, it's hard to turn great to merely good. But that's where I think you're probably being a little too hard on yourself, because if you look at Again, I'm just beating the PayPal example to death here because it was one that you brought up. But I mean, there was nothing stopping you from saying the same thing on a six-month basis in, what, December of 2020, right? You could have sold it then and missed that next 25% up. And yes, you would have sold it much higher than today, but like, it's just almost impossible to get those decisions correct. So I would say if you got the business decision correct and you rode along for a period of time and yes, you suffered this drawdown, I, I would declare that to be a victory. I don't know of a single company in the history of the world, including all the great ones that we all love to talk about, like Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and every, everything else. I mean, those are some unbelievable businesses that had everything going for them. And in the case of Berkshire, I struggle to think of a single time that it was ever egregiously overvalued and it still had at least, what, three drawdowns like this of 50%. So I, I just take it as a fact of life. And I don't think you've done anything wrong. In fact, I mean, I, I again, I guess you could just be over-concentrated. You could have a, an expectation issue amongst your capital base. Like those are, to me, the much bigger issues here because, you, you know, it's just, I, I think it's unrealistic to be able to get out in front of some of this volatility. Um, it's just, it's really hard. So the, the other thing I was going to say that I was writing this down as you were talking was that I think you have to decide what you're going to do as an investor early on. You have to decide what kind of base rate you're going to play off of, right? Because investors' options and opportunity costs are all driven by the this almost free passive option they have to hold every investment in the world at three basis points a year and hold them all forever. Right. I mean, that's basically how an index fund's going to work. And by doing that, they're going to capture, they're going to capture all the upside flukes, all the good companies in there that do tremendously well. And yes, there's going to be some dogs in there, but that's a tough bar to outperform. And so if you're going to do that, I think you have to go one of two directions. You either have to kind of closet mimic that strategy, or you have to go the complete polar opposite. And so if you're going the polar opposite and, and holding relatively few companies, you know, what's the base rate of those winners? I mean, we've talked about this before, that that paper from 2017 by Henrik Bessenbender, where the, he compared the lifetime returns of all 26,000 um, publicly traded equity securities in the University of Chicago database, and, you know, found that more than half of them did not outperform one month treasuries. And the most common, uh, the, the mode performance in, in in per lifetime performance rounded to the nearest 5% was a complete and total loss of capital over the lifetime of those securities, right? So you, at any given time in the market, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of dogs, but the tiny fraction of winners, and in his study, one third of 1% of all publicly traded securities were responsible for more than half of the aggregate return. It's worth pausing to think about that, right? I mean, we've talked about it before, but for anyone who didn't listen to that one or hasn't read the original paper, one third of 1%, it was, I think, 90, nine zero individual companies out of 26,000 were responsible for more than half of the aggregate wealth creation. And so if you don't own some of those, it's a tough bar. And if you think you've got one, and look, I mean, Google is in that category, right? So 
where should you have sold Google if you were smart enough to own it relatively early on? It's it's ridiculously hard to get on and off the train at the right time. So I, I look at the base rate of that kind of stuff and say, if I think I have one, which for me, it kind of boils down to, again, if I owned the entire company, how satisfied would I be? I'm looking at things like the reinvestment opportunity and the return on that reinvestment combined with management's acumen, honesty, integrity, and doing it. So how long can that growth continue? How long can that reinvestment continue? Am I going to reap good incremental returns on that capital and for how long? And I look at valuation and market prices last and barely at all in that horizon, right? So, I mean, the biggest position, my my sort of PayPal in this example, right, isn't one that I've talked about before and I don't plan to talk about it, but it's been the biggest position in my fund, similar to your experience, I think, with PayPal. It's been uh, we've owned it since late 2015, early 2016. It's tripled almost exactly from the position from the price we paid for it at inception. And along the way, it's had two horrendous years. Like two of the last seven years were total dogs. Uh, one year it was down 25, 30%. And then another year it was down 25, 30%. It hasn't, I don't think it's had a 50% drawdown, but it really shouldn't have because the results haven't been that volatile. So and I'm sure at some point it will have a 50% drawdown. So what should I have done along the way, right? Should I have tried to jump on and off as quickly as I could? To your point, I mean, the after-tax math is really hard. I do think it's a mistake, as you mentioned, to let the, the tax derangement syndrome, which is a great it's a great saying, great phrase. I, I do think it's always a mistake to let the tax reasons you know, be the, the tail wagging the dog, but you can't escape the math, right? I mean, it's really hard to jump on and off with perfect timing. So- I even debate sometimes the math of, of adding and trimming up and down along the way, right? I mean, you can do it. It's just, I think you get at risk of almost being too cute by half. It's just hard. So I don't know. I, I think the, the bigger sin here, I mean, I, I actually do agree, by the way, that when people talk only about errors of omission, it can be a little self-flattering in that regard. But um, I think this is a really tricky one. And if you were lucky enough, smart enough to own PayPal for the last six or seven years, the last six months shouldn't really keep you up at night that much. Unless, again, the factors that I mentioned before no longer apply, right? If you really think the company's on a downward trajectory for the next five years and management's lost its way and the reinvestment opportunity's gone to hell and all that stuff, that's a totally different ballgame. But if we're just talking about, you know, the the stock had a hell of a run from the beginning of the pandemic until the last few months. So I, I don't, I think this kind of stuff is all pretty normal, I guess. I don't know. John, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, everyone says that um, even the best investors go through a tough stretch at some point or multiple tough stretches. And it's true. So, you know, knowing that that's true, um, is there really anything to be learned uh, from those tough stretches uh, or do we have to feel like there's something to be learned because apparently they cannot be eliminated? You know, No matter how much we learn from them, there's going to be new tough stretches. Um, I still think there are things that can be learned or at least we should try. Otherwise, we're you know, not interested in, in becoming the best we can be. Uh, but we're always going to have tough stretches. That's just how it is. Um, And then, you know, conceptually, you look at some of the examples of charts that people hold up to say, this is why I, you know, hold through the tough stretches on individual stocks. I mean, just think of the long-term chart of Apple. Um, 
you know, if you could have, you would have felt like a complete idiot, um, you know, at that time of, let's say, when Microsoft had invested or at some point Apple traded uh, below net cash, I think, or close to that. And, um, but if you had just held through that, um, you, you would have done extremely well. Not that there's a clear lesson there, but it's just an example where, you know, when we look back at such charts, we really don't understand the, the psychology at various points. And the psychology gets really, really tough when, uh, when you do have that big um, drawdown. Um, you know, in terms of tax uh, efficiency, I feel like, um, you know, Elliot, um, you know, you clearly care about the overall financial picture of your clients and tax efficiency plays a role there. Most of your clients, I assume, are taxable clients. Um, but what's interesting is that tax efficiency does not show up in um, the official uh, performance numbers, you know? So um, someone who maybe doesn't actually care about what the what their um, investors can spend uh, would be a lot less concerned about that and would just be concerned about what the official numbers uh, show uh, in terms of uh, performance. Uh, so, you know, I think you're definitely doing right by your uh, investors to think about that issue, even though it's not, um, it's not actually in your, in your numbers. Um, and then what I would say on, um, on trimming, you mentioned you, you, you were kind of trimming more based on sizing rather than valuation. I mean, for, for me, um, that tends to work pretty well because I always have some dogs and some things that do better, but you know, what happened with, I think, um, your portfolio is that everything did really well. And when everything does really well, the, the relative sizing doesn't really change. And so you may not hit that, um, you know, rebalancing trigger, um, which is where it might be a good idea to have some kind of um, bounds on, on the valuation you're willing to tolerate. Uh, but again, you know, the tax uh, efficiency math makes that pretty tough. And then just one other thing, I think on a past episode of the podcast, we even had a topic uh, or the idea was that there's really no such sector as the internet. Um, you really got to look through to the underlying um, sectors or industries, you know, like a Roku is very different from Naked Wines or Google. Um and that's that's absolutely true. And I think over the long term, that is how um, to look at this. But I think what we're seeing now is that in the short term, the market um, will not look through and they just will say, oh, the internet sector or tech or whatever you want to call it, and then just sell off everything in unison. And I think that's where, you know, kind of portfolio diversification um, topics uh, come into into play again. So those are just a few uh, thoughts. Yeah, no, I appreciate all the thoughts, guys. I didn't mean to make this like specifically about me. I think, you know, there are like a lot of high level questions and the portfolio is more diverse than like a lot of the names I talk about. I believe in uh, semi-concentration largely because of some of these things. But what happened with COVID is, you know, some parts of it did exceptionally well and other parts were like hurt by COVID. So it naturally concentrated. And uh, lost a little bit of its focus. And I think that's one of the questions too, right? Like there's a distinction between 
portfolio management and investing. And it's been one of my favorite podcast topics to push. Like, how do you think about constructing a portfolio? How do you think about things like path dependency and trying to put yourself in a position to have something that works in each environment? Um, those I think are like critical questions that go above and beyond merely like security analysis and security selection. Um, you know, it's very different uh, when you do have cash flow constantly coming in. So there's a natural rebalancing that occurs than when you have a rigid opportunity cost and must carve within a distinct pie. Um, so yeah, and 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 you know, one of the things I really do grapple with is like um, how unique is today's environment specifically driven by COVID and the forces that it wrought on the world at large um, versus like it being merely, are there truly broadly applicable lessons to take right now is one of the things I'm, I'm definitely grappling with. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's the right answer or not. Um, I think this environment is incredibly um, different and unique than any other that I've witnessed. And I don't know many other people who've witnessed a pandemic like this. I think there's always a unique environment. I mean, so you didn't, it it sounds like this was just before, but I mean, I I distinctly remember the conversations in 2007 and 2008 where people that were much older and wiser than me were saying, well, that's never happened before in the sense that it could never happen kind of a conversation, right? And the same has been true with a lot of things we've seen in the pandemic. And I think the more you look at it, the more you realize there's always this push and pull between things that seem ridiculous or impossible or unprecedented. And they are, they're always different, but there's always something that in the past can kind of point you in the same direction. So I think there's always a lesson to be taken away and you just have to be really careful in applying it. And it isn't just business. The same is true of history and politics and sociology and economics and lots of different topics. So I wanted to circle back to a couple of things John said. I think I should have mentioned this because I think it's the most important point in this whole thing, which is just the psychology of it, right? I mean, when you're having a bad period or when things have gone against you, you feel like a moron. Your clients, you know, you feel like you've let people down. So I distinctly remember reading when I was very, very early on in this whole thing, again, around the same time, that when the Nifty 50 crashed in the early 70s and Charlie Munger was down by more than 50%, I think he had two straight horrendous years where his clients were just probably getting killed. And he said, I never cared because I knew what would happen and I knew I'd be fine. And I knew this would all turn around and I was on the right side of logic and reason and the numbers. But I did feel that stomach churning you know, pain because I didn't want to disappoint people, right? And I think that is exactly right. I think that's the absolute hardest thing in this whole thing. On the way up, people are telling you how great you are. You're getting pats on the back from your neighbor and your uncle and your friends. And everybody says you're doing such a great job. And then on the way down, it just feels way worse than it felt good on the way up. And you just have to manage that. I mean, there's just no way around it. I certainly don't have it figured out, but I think that's by far the hardest part of anything we're talking about here. Yeah, 100% agree with that. It's very different than when you're, you get in your own head about some of those questions. Um, and it feels, uh, I don't know, different, uh, not to overuse that word, but it feels different um, when you trust it and you, you don't know how to impart that trust to people directly. But I'm thankful and grateful to have really good investors, a lot of whom I built trust with through my you know, that, that formative period I was telling you all about. But I think that's a great quote and a great example to draw on, Phil. So thank you for uh, 
putting that one out there. And I remember it was like a minus 50% and then a minus 30% year. And I think it takes a certain kind of unique personality to be able to go through that. And then, uh, you know, come out the other side with, uh, or get to come out the other side, but, um, it's, uh, certainly something to think about. And at some point, you know, I, I do think there's a degree to which like fundamentals haven't mattered on the way up and on the way down. And they do exert their inertia over the very long term. Like there's no way around that. One other point I'd make, I think that will be interesting to see is I think the last, you know, call it hundred days have been pretty rough for a good number of people. And they come on the back of some pretty good days, right? Like the the prior 400 days would have been pretty awesome for that same group of people in a lot of cases. And so what might be somewhat unique and is probably unprecedented in their experiences, unless they were doing this 25 years ago, they wouldn't have had that experience. And even that took several years, right? I mean, the late 90s up through 2000, 2001, you know, there was a little bit slower crescendo and then let down. And if the same thing is going to happen right now, and this is not a forecast, this is just an observation. If the same thing were going to happen right now, it's just been all compressed and it's all been compressed into a much shorter period of time where we're also going through a pandemic and we're also going through all sorts of political upheavals and other chaos happening in the real world. So I understand the dizzying effect of the, the whiplash, so to speak, on that. And that's where, again, I think, you know, if you're doing it all decent work, we can come to some sort of reasonable range of assumptions around a business, but the psychology and the self-awareness and the self-control are what's really going to set people apart. Yeah. And I, I, I would just um, kind of talk a little bit more about this um, question of when to sell, because I think this is part of a big part of this uh, discussion. And um you know, you can draw lessons kind of around the criteria of um, selling. Um, but I also think you could look um, a little bit at a higher level, uh, which I know I, I know I need to do for myself. There's there's almost like a dial that that each of us has in terms of their propensity to sell. Um, and my dial is definitely set to sell too early. Um, so, you know, as much as I want to think about the criteria, you know, if management does this or that, or, or something happens on the competitive front, I want to sell or in the valuation or what have you just basically as a starting point, I need to be aware that I tend to sell too early. So what I need to do within my process is slow myself down from selling in whatever way, um, you know that that can happen, and I think um, you know if 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 you feel like um, you sell too late or you have sold too late in some cases or or what have you, then I would maybe work on kind of turning that dial or trying to readjust the dial a little bit the other way, because ultimately that could make a, a big difference. Um, Because there's probably some golden uh, middle ground here. And uh, so, but maybe it's just you and me, Elliot, getting on a a phone call every once in a while and you talk me out of selling too early and I try to talk you into selling. (laughs) I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly right, John. Like, I I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I I think that is a huge point again. That's, That's the second one that should have been right at the front because 
you have to know yourself. And like, I'm probably prone to what Elliot was talking about earlier, sucking my thumb or delaying the decision a little bit too much, right? I'm certainly not turning the portfolio over too much. If anything, I am always prone to turning it over even less. So if I have somebody that can say, hey, you know, look, it's probably time to, to move on here, or do something. And I do. I have a couple of people that when that kind of situation comes around, that's literally, I get them on the phone. I describe what's going on. I say, what, you know, which end of the spectrum am I missing on here? And I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think it's very helpful to, it, by the way, this is better than therapy. Not that I do that, but this, <laughs> this is better. Um, I think, um, you know, when you put it like that, one of the things I think is the better you are at buying, the more inclined you should be to sell early. So there's some people who always buy too early, right? And um, those people should be most inclined to hold for a long time versus people who buy well. Um, I'm not sure I, I'm 100% convinced of that, but it like mathematically makes sense in a lot of ways. Um, so that's that's something I've definitely been thinking about. Yeah, I wish I could agree with that. I tend to buy early and sell early, so my, <laughs> it just doesn't work out too well. But and there's a mathematical problem with that too, right? If you buy early and sell early, you take the risk of your risk reward equation without taking the reward out of it. Often. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to kind of you know uh, wait it out to <laughs> to get back to even, but then I kind of have tasted uh, what it's like to be losing on on that particular investment and so um i my patience kind of goes down like if i buy in too early or way too early my patience definitely goes down but as you correctly say elliot it should actually go up so mm-hmm. that i actually, so that i get the reward for the pain i took getting in right yeah and you know at the end of the day it's all about like taking these lumps and being humble and just trying to ask questions and learn. And um, I I think one of the clearest answers is that there are no perfect answers, Uh, but yeah, uh, it's very helpful to talk these things through. What I will say is that I have found it easier now that I just invest my own money um, because earlier and Obviously, this depends on on kind of the kinds of clients you have, but a lot of clients I feel like have selective memory, and you know they felt good or bad about a holding at different points in time, and they'll just remember like the one feeling that suits them best, you know. So, uh, just a really quick vignette, you know, I had a uh, a position uh, when I was managing a partnership, and. Um, and I was so excited about that position. And I told my biggest investor about it. Um, it was a huge position. And he told me that I was just the biggest idiot for investing in that company at that particular point in time. And uh, lo and behold, it went down 50%. And I just felt so horrible. And um, you know, back to that uh, selling too early, my patience was shot. So when that stock got back to even and a little bit, I just sold out. And then it went up like 20x within a year or two. And uh, and that same client, um, when, you know, he wasn't like seeing great performance for the fund, um, gave me a hard time, basically. He's like, well, you know, why did you sell that? I 
said, well, you said that was the stupidest idea ever to invest in this. And you listened to me? I mean, it was literally not a very, uh, very happy discussion. So, um, you know, we got we to gotta work a lot of these things out in, uh, in our own heads. And I think that's where a lot of this game is uh, played ultimately. And I'd add talking about it publicly has helped, not hurt for me. So I think that's uh, been one of the interesting facets to it all. So yeah, that's an interesting one. Me. No, that's an interesting one. Though. I think that's worth talking about too, because I think a lot of people, the more they talk around other people, the worse it is for them. And in your case, it sounds like the opposite is true. So there again, I think it's a matter of just understanding your own personality and your own strengths and weaknesses. Because I think a lot of people get so involved in the, whatever you want to call it, the social proof, the keeping up with the Joneses, impressing your friends, all that stuff, right? That if, if they start talking about the wins and the losses in public, it exacerbates the underlying. But if you're going about it with a different personality or in a different frame of mind, like you said, it can really be better than therapy. So, Absolutely. Well, fascinating discussion. Uh, Phil, I know you have uh, something in store for us as well. Sure. So I wanted to talk this week uh, somewhat briefly, but um, we had Spencer Jacob on last week, as you mentioned, John, and if anybody missed that, I'd encourage them to go back and listen to it. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. And uh, I think his book, uh, The Revolution That Wasn't About GameStop and Reddit and the whole meme stock mania of 2021 is you know, going to be right up there in terms of the things if you're trying to explain markets and psychology to somebody in 25 or 50 years and you, you point to the South Sea bubble, Dutch tulips, you know, whatever. This is, I think, going to be right up there in, in terms of the lessons you need to draw about what markets are capable of and the, the psychological forces that come to bear. And along those lines, I, I was recently rereading some old files. I was cleaning up uh, the disaster that is my desk in my office here and, and going back through some old files. So when I read something, my reading system is basically to read and process as much as I can and I mark it up. And if it's something pertinent to something I'm working on now or may work on in the future, I take notes in a dedicated notebook as I go, and then I file it digitally and physically if I read it. Um, and, and so then the physical and digital files are all, of course, in searchable and chronological orders. The physical files are in accordion files uh, by the time in which they were produced and, and then read by me. And I've found an enormous benefit from going back and reading those old files. So I have old files and old notebooks now going all the way back, you know, about 15 years. And it's amazing what I can learn. And I think the ability to go back and understand what other people were thinking and saying and reading and what I was thinking at the time and then compare it to what actually happened is among the most helpful things I've ever come across in terms of realizing my own strengths and weaknesses, developing pattern recognition and, and building out sort of my mental database of of investment ideas. And so one of the dumbest things I've ever I've ever heard or read on this topic is this idea that you can cure yourself of reading the news by reading old newspapers because once the next day dawns the newspaper's dead and worthless and I've just never understood that notion at all because you shouldn't be reading the Wall Street Journal to figure out what the price of oil was yesterday. That's not a useful bit of news or information. You can look that up instantaneously in 19 different sources. You should be reading for context as to what's happening in the world and then try to make your own framework as to why those things are happening. So still, on a daily basis today, I read 
three or four newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, I'll skim the Financial Times, Bloomberg News, Washington Post, the local newspaper, wherever I happen to be, uh, whether that's home or traveling. Uh, some of those are physical. Most of them are online. Uh, I have a carefully cultivated Twitter feed with lots of news sources in it, uh, including various business publications. I read on a monthly or weekly basis things like Fortune and Foreign Affairs and Wired and a bunch of trade publications. Uh, I, I've trimmed that list down a little bit because there was so much duplication when you go into things. There's still some excellent publications like The Economist and others that I used to read regularly that I don't anymore. But I, I, I just want to give a, a shout out to this concept of financial journalism. So we've now on the on the podcast had Spencer Jacob. Hopefully we're going to get Jason Zweig at some point. Roger Lowenstein is going to be coming on hopefully next month, I think. Uh, I doubt, I don't know if we could ever get Matt Levine, but I, I've mentioned this before. His column at Bloomberg is one of the most insightful, intelligent, and entertaining things I've ever read. Bethany McLean. Uh, we've had Larry Cunningham. We had William Green, who used to be more of a journalist, now more of an author in that regard. Um, again, I mean, look no further than Carol Loomis is to someone who was a preeminent journalist who helped shape, you know, one of the companies that we all like to talk about. And that, and that I don't think the annual letters that we all read at, at Berkshire Hathaway would have been the same without her influence. So I just want to shoot down this notion. I, I see it quite a bit. It tends to be, I guess, on Twitter. I get it from time to time in my own personal life when they see, you know, my copy of the Wall Street Journal. If, if they're coming from the left, they say, that newspaper is such a right-wing rag. And the, you know, the same is true for the New York Times. And, and yes, I get it. All news organizations have bias. All news organizations have a slant and a perspective. All news organizations want to sell subscriptions and generate clicks. And if you didn't learn that in sixth grade, I don't know why this is a newsflash to you now as an adult. I mean, everybody has a point of view. Everybody has something they're trying to push. Everyone has a implicit or explicit bias in whatever it is they're doing and talking about, me included. So if you didn't learn to filter that out early on, I don't understand why you would think that you can make good subjective decisions and, and probabilistic forecasts in the world of investing. I mean, it's similar to this argument that short sellers should be ignored because they have a financial interest in the outcome. Well, yeah, of course they do. And God bless them for having that, that interest because they do a service to the market. And, and the same, by the way, doesn't apply to long investors and executives who are talking you know, about all the good things that are going to happen when they have a long position in a security. It makes absolutely no sense. So I, look, the, the, the process that I've generated for this is, is similar to anything else. But I think the, the beauty of this is that journalists have their own research, facts, checking, editing, career building in mind but they still get it right almost all the time. There are a handful that get it wrong. There are a handful of cynical news organizations. There's plenty of fake news farms and clickbait factories out there. I'm not talking about any of those, but if anybody can't listen to an interview like the one we did with Spencer last week and read his column in the Wall Street Journal and, and many of his colleagues and peers there and, and not get something out of it, I, don't, I just don't know what else to tell them. So uh, one other trick that I would point out, by the way, is I've made some of my best investments and decisions and generated the best research, not from you know, searching an online database of expert network calls or reading sell-side research or anything like that. It's actually been calling journalists and talking to journalists when they've covered a company or when they've covered an executive, uh, particularly if it's a company with a particularly uh, concentrated headquarters. Um, this happened to me just recently, I guess it was last year in 2021, 
Um, I was looking at a company. I had actually started buying shares. I had some open questions. Uh, some of the things the company was saying didn't make a lot of sense. And I noticed uh, just through a good old fashioned Google search that there was one journalist at a local, very small news organization who'd been covering the company and its executives for about 10 years. I was able to get in touch with that person. And he told me some things that made my jaw hit the floor. Um, I mean, this was some valiant style misbehavior that was, you know, pretty well known in a very small circle of people. And it was not in uh, the readily available information. And it saved me dozens or hundreds of hours of work and a lot of ultimate pain and suffering financially because I was able to, to get in touch with that person. And it's simple, right? I mean, this is not me being smart or doing anything better than anyone else. So um, I'll leave it there. I was curious if you guys have other things that or other specific journalists that you've enjoyed following or other resources that you found that are particularly good. Yeah. I mean, I'm generally a fan of journalism and journalists. I think um, there's much to learn about investing from journalists. Buffett himself has said as much, and I've learned a lot just from you know understanding how journalists nurture sources, ask questions, synthesize uh, and piece together stories, right? You have a mosaic that you're building with lots of disparate information and have to pull it together. Um, and the best journalists, you know, have a pretty open mind, but they also know what threads to pull and where to follow things. So, you know, I um, tend to really appreciate it. I think there's some people who are fantastic. I think some are better at different things than others. Um, you know, I mean, we're obviously dabbling a little more in uh, the business world than in uh, some other domains. Um, but I think there's some interviewers and some people who get quite knowledgeable that I really appreciate. I think uh, Joe Weisenthal at Bloomberg is both funny, uh, smart, and follows good topics. Um, you know, I think each of the ones you mentioned, Phil, um, are, are fantastic. Jason Zweig's like basically as, as good as they get. Um, so I don't know how many other individuals I'd call out at the moment, but in general, you know, I, I'd say that if you are putting journalism aside, you're doing yourself a disservice. And um, the one other side to that I'd give is you as an individual now with a resource like Twitter have the power to curate your own sort of network and your own feed, much like a journalist could in the past. And to the extent that I think there's the capacity to create and curate your own information, I think that's very helpful. I also think you have to be wary because people are want to create their own information bubbles. And I think it's helpful to read from people of other perspectives with other predispositions. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest critiques of journalism is that it's written with a bias. Well, humans write. Humans have biases, but exactly. you know, it's not <laughs> your job to adopt those biases. You should read information and you should develop skills for being able to parse out, you know, to what extent something's fact and to what extent something's opinion. So that's like the worst excuse I've ever heard to avoid journalism. Yeah, I actually keep a, a list uh, or I, I keep a subset of uh, follows on Twitter of people whose opinion I think is such garbage or whose opinions are so ill-founded that it's like a, a contrarian indicator almost, right? And it, it keeps me honest, right? Because I think you're right that I could be wrong and they could prove to be correct on a certain subset of areas that I'm just misinformed or ill-educated on. 
it could be a way of keeping some perspective and not get into an echo chamber or a bubble of my own uh, self-importance. But um, I think that that definitely makes sense. One thing I'm also curious about though is why have we gotten to this point where we think whatever we read on a screen via Twitter, Facebook, or whatever can be taken at face value, but something that's gone through a research writing editing process at a for-profit institution of journalism is immediately to be disregarded. Like that's just, <laughs> it boggles my mind. I don't know. Yeah. You even hear that about like peer reviewed uh, research publications and it's like, come on, you know, not everything has to be right on the first effort too. Like that's part of the process. You kind of put things out there and you continue to get feedback. And I think that's one of the cool things on Twitter in particular you know, uh, you do get feedback and it's very quick and it's rapid and you get to kind of like um, battle in the uh, marketplace of ideas. Um, and that's part of why I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily a free speech absolutist, but I do think to err on that side is is helpful in some ways. Um, and there are other ways that you could counteract that problem with then, then shutting down certain voices. Yeah, I'll, I definitely agree with uh, with everything you guys uh, said. I think um, there's a ton of value um, from reading, talking to journalists. Um, I don't do nearly enough of the talking to them, um, almost never. Uh, but I think Buffett, you know, was the one who said that basically, to be a good security analyst, you got to think of yourself almost as an investigative journalist um, who also then understands, um, you know, accounting and so forth. And uh, that's really what the job is. So I think, Phil, when you um, talked about talking to a local journalist, I mean, that is, uh, that's great. That's, that's like scuttlebutt um, of some kind. And uh, it can be immensely helpful. I did a lot more of that when I was a cell site analyst for a little while uh, back in the day. And uh, then I was kind of talking to a lot of uh, also local or specialized journalists, and it was always uh, extremely helpful. Uh, so I can only recommend that. Um, in terms of my um, kind of uh, information diet, I, I have been trying more and more to kind of co collect my own sources. And the more obscure or more long tail, the better. Um, because I want to try to read stuff that not everyone's reading. And I feel like that's a good way to have ideas that not everyone has, or that are, or, or also not just ideas, but viewpoints that are just very different, but hopefully still informed. Um, and I think now, um, there's really a lot of great niche newsletters, um, that I think are at a super high level of quality. Uh, that is really unmatched, and I don't think the main newspapers uh, match that. You know, with the main newspapers, I think you kind of want to focus on the writers that you really respect or the columnists. Uh, but some of these um, really niche um, newsletters or Substacks or Twitter feeds, I think, are immensely helpful. I mean, I follow some people on Twitter um, that also share some kind of micro cap, small cap ideas that are so good that I hesitate to even like their tweets because I don't want anything to get out. I don't want their, them to get well known. So sorry to be selfish, but uh, 
there's a lot of great stuff. Share out me there. your list, John. Come yeah, on. Right? I will. <laughs> a lot of a lot of really good sources. Um, and I think uh, each of us, uh, that is a huge part of the process to kind of cultivate those sources, uh, refine them over time, and uh, kind of minimize the noise and maximize the signal. Yeah, exactly. So, well, if we, uh, maybe I'll try to put together a, a mini list of some broader sources rather than the mainstream ones, but I thought it was worth on the heels of Spencer's interview last week to give this little uh, ode to journalists and to the to the great work they do. So thanks for indulging me. Yeah, thank you. And uh, as you mentioned, Phil, uh, we're super excited to get more journalists and authors on the podcast. Also invite uh, our listeners uh, suggestions and ideas in that regard. Um, so yeah, looking forward to um, who did you say is coming on next month, Phil? Uh, hopefully, Roger Lonstein. We we haven't oh, scheduled it yet, but he's got a new book coming out and said he'd be doing some interviews uh, in conjunction with that. And I, again, I think I've probably told this story, but uh, he's more of a long form author than a than a journalist. But uh, when I was a clueless, naive, green, young MBA student and and stumbling blindly from one thing to the next, and I read his book the making of an american capitalist it was truly the cartoon light bulb going off over my head that changed the direction of my career and my life and i think that's the impact that one good writer author journalist can have on somebody so i'm excited to uh, talk to him about that among other things terrific well thank you so much guys another fascinating discussion i hope uh, all of you listening enjoyed it as well we'll be back next week take care for now Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.